Chapter 5, Perfect Oneness. In the beginning of this book, I talked about the majesty of the sequoias and how they create this sense of awe and wonder to all who lay eyes on them. But there is one thing I intentionally left out for the sole purpose of writing this chapter. Sequoias have a secret about the strength that lies under the surface, a secret that many people are unaware of, as it is not common among many trees. The mystery lies in their roots. It's not necessarily how deep these roots go, as a sequoia's root system will only dive down at most about 14 feet, which for a tree that stands over 200 feet tall or more, that is not much support at all. They also have a no tap root, which is typically the primary root that anchors a tree as well as the main conductor of water to a tree. It is what allows a tree to live and grow in isolation. But that's not how these trees were designed. Considering how massive a sequoia can get, the fact that they do not have a taproot is amazing in itself. But their mystery doesn't end there. What causes their mystique is in what they embed in and how they spread wide, often taking up an acre of land for one root system. Sequoias are often found on the sides of mountains and in rocky terrain, and as I'm sure you can imagine, such places do not have the greatest soil the deeper it goes down. So how do these massive trees that cascade the skyline stand so strong when the winds rage against them? Well, partly because when the environment mandates the need to, they will embed their roots in the rock. Now, if you are familiar with what Jesus says about the rocky soil and the parable of the sower, this analogy would seem to be counterproductive in relating this to our spiritual walks with Christ. In fact, most every comparison or analogy will have a flaw to one degree or another the farther that you carry it out. However... If you were to see the rock as Christ, then this analogy fits perfectly for what I'm trying to achieve. Life is not always going to be the most convenient, as I'm sure you have noticed by now. But when we choose to sink our roots down into the bedrock of Christ, there becomes no limit to how tall we can grow in Him. Colossians 2, 6-7 He becomes the anchor of our soul, thus we can have hope and peace, knowing that there is no element this world can bring against us that will prevail. Hebrews 6, 17-20 as the word puts it, no weapon formed against us shall stand. But that isn't all to their source of prevailing strength, for to sink our roots deep in Christ, we must also then function as he wants us to, in order for his peace and joy to be with us. So these roots weren't designed to just stop there. They were designed to spread out as well, taking up to 90,000 cubic feet of soil for one tree. That's almost the size of an entire city block in Manhattan. But the intriguing thing about these roots is that they do not just spread out wide, but they will literally begin to fuse together with other sequoia root systems. They don't just mingle together with them and rub against them, clinging only when the storms blow or when they need something from the other roots, but they will literally become one with them, fusing together to hold one another up and share the resources provided to them. These two factors are what enables these majestic trees to grow strong and impervious to the elements. This, my brothers and sisters, is how we as Christians are to be with one another. We are not just supposed to sink our roots into the earth, but into Christ. And we are not to just brush arms with one another once or twice a week while we primarily focus on our jobs, families, and building our own kingdoms. Rather, we are designed to become one with one another as a family so that we can grow into the full image of Jesus Christ, into full maturity. And this is a mystery to the success of the early church. And it has become shrouded in America today. It's time we unveil the beauty of who we are supposed to be in Christ and begin to rebuild what has been torn down. We must, by the grace of God, 
Return to the majesty we were created to showcase. But how? Where do we start? How can we rebuild something that almost seems utterly hopeless? Dear brethren, we are never without hope as long as we are with Christ. So, for that, I believe we can look back at the story of Nehemiah. He was no prophet, warrior, or king. There was nothing about him that would make you think he would be a man that would change the world. He was a servant, a cupbearer to the king. But this man believed in his God and in the sanctity of his kingdom. So, when, we, when he heard of the ruin of Jerusalem, in which the walls were broken down and the gates destroyed, he resolved to make a difference. For God had put it in his heart. Though he was 9,900 miles away, he approached the king for papers of authority to go travel to Jerusalem, not knowing exactly all that his arrival would entail. But forward he went nonetheless. He also needed to get supplies first, timber to fix what was broken. So here's this man with the authority of the king traveling to a distant land to fix what was broken down. And oh yeah, he had timber on his back. Now I'll let you have the joys of going through one of my favorite stories to see how Nehemiah is a foreshadow of Jesus. But I'm going to stay on topic for the initial reason we are studying this book together. So we will pick up in the story in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. The Hebrew word for derision is cherpah. And it means taunt, scorn, condition of shame, disgrace. Jerusalem was being mocked and laughed at. As the world was no longer seeing any majesty or power within it. It was vulnerable, weak, and the enemy had access to enter since the gates were broken down. This is how much of the church is today. We are not functioning as we ought, thus the world is not seeing the expression of the majesty of Jesus and his kingdom, at least not to the level we are capable of expressing through Christ. Now many of you might read this and say, didn't Jesus come and fix that? And you would be right, he did. He made the way for us to walk in power, victory, and authority over any spiritual enemy, but that hinges on our abiding in him. Jesus says in John fifteen five, apart from me you can do nothing. Paul says that it is our job as Christians to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. Just because you enter into Christ through a covenant of faith does not mean that your relationship is healthy with him and it doesn't automatically mean you will be able to stand against the enemy despite any disobedience to his will. Jesus must be first in order for you to be able to stand against the enemy. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. According to the word, who has the job of resisting the devil? We do. God has the power. We hold the choice to utilize that power or to buckle under the temptation. Jesus offers us a throne of grace so that we might receive help when in need. But you and I are responsible for both believing for it and grappling it down. Only a fool would engage in battle without armor and a sword. So let's make sure we choose to put on the whole armor of God. We're going to pause from the story briefly so I can interject a thought about why seeing the restoration of God's church is such an important thing to me. And I believe to God. It is simple. I love Jesus. And because I love him, I want for his glory, gospel message, and sacrifice to be seen among the world. Look at me, look with me at John 17, 20 through 23. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning the apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Emphasis mine. Now, I don't know about you, but that passage absolutely set my understanding of evangelizing God's way on its head. Read it again. The ability for the world to believe the gospel is directly linked to the degree the church seeks to be perfectly one with one another. We like to go and preach the word and tell of God's love to the masses, and I'm all for that. I think we should. But I'm not the one who wrote the blueprint for how best to evangelize. God did. According to Jesus, the primary way of evangelizing the gospel is through the church seeking to be perfectly one with one another, which is manifested through the construct of the local church. Much of the world has already heard the message of God's love expressed through the cross and how Jesus was sent to them in love, but they haven't seen the fullness of that message lived out by the church and how we love one another. This is primarily where we have failed. In seeking to establish our own methods, we have bypassed God's method of showing the world His love through the church showing His love to one another. Look at this message written by John. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The natural progression would seem to be, Jesus laid down his life for us, so we should lay down our lives for him. But that's not what is written. John redirects the beneficiary of our love for Christ unto the brethren. The Spirit writes that we, as the beloved, must love Jesus through loving one another in the same way he loved us. In doing so, we promote the brightest light of the gospel message unto the world. This truth is amazingly profound, yet amazingly absent from many of our churches today. You don't have to go too far around the block to see that there is much more division, criticism, arguing, bickering, and selfishness than there is the perfect love of Christ, all because of worldly passions and pursuits. James 4, 1-4. No wonder the world isn't hearing the message of the gospel. They aren't seeing those who proclaim it, living it out. Brethren, we as the body of Christ must learn how to get along in truth and love, not one or the other. Otherwise, the world will not hear the words we speak because our actions shine a contradictory light. I once had the privilege to baptize a newfound brother several years back, and I believe he gave one of the highest compliments anyone could give. When asked what it was that helped draw him to the Lord, standing there in the water, he declared this statement as paraphrased best in my memory. I thought I always knew who God was and what the gospel was, but in seeing how you all loved one another, I came to a place of brokenness in knowing that I was missing that kind of love in my life. I saw the love of Jesus through how y'all loved one another. Brethren, beloved of God, this must be our primary form of evangelism. We must set our hands to the plow of loving one another as Jesus loved us. Because if I'm being blunt, loving one another in the way we are exampled by Christ seems utterly anemic in many of our churches today. 
There is some good stuff happening and glimmers of hope, but we must learn once again how to commit to, prioritize, and love one another above all other relationships before the power of God will ever manifest itself once again in and through his appeal to the world. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We must once again find the most excellent way. 1 Corinthians 12.31 Now getting back to Nehemiah and how he is going to rebuild what was torn down. Listen to what he charges the people. Let us arise and build. Nehemiah 2.18 The charge was to build together, side by side. It was not to continue going about their normal routines in life while a select few did all the work, but to abandon all that was of lesser priority and engage in this mission as one people. Doesn't that excite you to think about being part of a group of people who share that same vision in life? Just imagine having 20, 50, or 100 men and women who all seek to prioritize loving one another above all else and committed to each other in perfect harmony because of their devotion to Christ. I don't know about you, but that is something I would love to see before I die. Now let me introduce you to a couple characters you already know well. Even if you don't know their names or have never read about them, you will see soon that you know them well. They are Sam Ballot and Tobiah. Sound familiar? Probably not. But these foreign voices will pop their heads up throughout this story and you will see their schemes and how they are identical to how the enemy tries to keep us from building today. Skip with me to chapter 4. Nehemiah and the people have already committed to move forward and have begun to build. And there are two men who aren't happy about it. In summarizing their tactics, both Sambal and Tobiah, in their rage of seeing progress, try to cast doubt upon the people. They begin to jeer at them to make them doubt that their work will amount to anything or that it won't even survive in the end. They try to come at them in a way that diminishes what faith in God and obedience to his ways can and will do. Have you ever felt this doubt come at you before when you wanted to step out in faith? We'll call it the what if questions that seem to creep inside your mind and try to prevent you from moving forward. What if it fails? What if I look like a fool? What if it costs me my job? What if they hate me? You know the doubts all too well, I'm sure. But look at what Nehemiah does for the people in verses 4 and 5. He stands in the gap, as a good leader does for his people. It isn't, isn't it beautiful, dear brethren, that Jesus will stand in the gap for us when we choose to move forward? And the onslaught of the enemy ensues? In an often abused but underused verse, the author of Hebrews says, Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 Contextually, this is not a salvation verse necessarily, but an obedience verse. When we choose to move forward in faith, God has promised that he will not leave us high and dry. He will not leave us without an advocate on our behalf. He will be with us. This doesn't mean it won't be difficult or that we don't have responsibility, but it means we have one who is standing in the gap on our behalf. Trusting God is like having to jump out of an airplane and rely on the parachute. We have to jump before we ever truly learn that he is faithful. So, don't buy into those voices that would try and steer you away from a resolute faith in what our God can do. He who promised is faithful. Take a step. Next, when they saw that the breaches were closing and that Jerusalem was still moving forward, Sambal and Tobiah got very angry and sought to fight against them by causing confusion among the people. Confusion, just like doubt, is an often damaging voice that tries to creep in and keep us from our mission. It is the opposite of being sober-minded. It often results when we take our eyes off of the foundation of God's word and instead begin to listen to other voices, whether it be culture, friends, family, or our own way that seems right. 
They often cause internal conflict between what is right and wrong. But the power of prayer was utilized by the people against their tactics, and all were encouraged to not be afraid of them. They remembered the Lord, who is both great and awesome, and God frustrated their plans to attack. Nehemiah 4, 14-15 I'll also point out it wasn't just Nehemiah who prayed this time. They united together to silence the assault. Unity grows in the midst of conflict when faith grows in the midst of community. So the work continued. Confidence in God grew. And trust for one another began to grow as the people resolved to maintain the same purpose and aim for something greater than themselves. They weren't concerned about building their own kingdom as civilians, but rather working as soldiers to see God's kingdom come. Now Nehemiah, knowing the attacks would only intensify, commanded the people to make sure that each person was not loaded with more than they could bear. This is a crucial component we briefly touched on earlier in this book. Every person in your local expression of the body must be carrying their weight. For if one member chooses to not function as they ought, it bogs down the whole body and will often cause the load bearers to struggle immensely. A blind man still has senses to use, but they all have to work a lot harder to do what the eyes should have been doing, if healthy. Let me illustrate this concept another way. We are currently in the process of building a discipleship center called the Olive Press. My oldest son and I were down there just the other day cleaning up and installing more bracing in the trusses. So I took the opportunity to explain to him how a building is designed. Every piece of wood used has a role to play in the overall integrity and strength of the building. Even the very design of the trusses and the corresponding bracing has a specific function and method in strengthening the building. So that it won't fall against the harshest of elements. When wind presses against a wall... The braces are designed specifically to absorb the pressure, then distribute it throughout the rest of the structural integrity of the building. The weight-bearing load is not up to just one or even a few, but designed to evenly distribute the load throughout the whole. This is what allows for a building to withstand tremendous amounts of force against it when the load is spread among the whole. This is how each church is designed to operate, bearing one another's burdens, And the people in Nehemiah are a great example of many working as one to bear a load that is too great for the few. Now we come to a phrase I want you to familiarize yourselves with. The phrase is Elohim Lacham. And it means our God will fight for us. Nehemiah 4.20 Just pause for a moment and think about that. Like seriously, stop reading and just think about that phrase. God Almighty will fight for us. Why then do we ever hesitate to move forward in faith when we know that the God in whom nothing is above or equal to fights for us as we for him? This notion should propel us forward in complete confidence as it did for the Jews and Nehemiah. But for some reason, we hesitate. I don't think the hesitation is from a lack of desire to move forward in faith. Rather, I think it is linked to the fact that our concept of God is not high enough. We need a fresh, increased revelation of the majesty and power of God Almighty. Think about this. Rebuilding the wall took a total of 52 days in which they didn't change clothes, Nehemiah 4.23, and got very little sleep through it all, Nehemiah 4.21-22. This is a people who had a sense of purpose, who most certainly were not entangled in civilian pursuits, but they understood the magnitude and weight of what they were setting their minds to. But even in this moment when things are progressing and the walls have been finished, the enemy will pull a scheme that is one of the most deceptive, dangerous, and damaging schemes in his bag of tricks. 
Listen to Nehemiah 6.2. Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafrim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Seems harmless, right? All Sambalat and Geshem were requesting is for Nehemiah to come outside the walls, away from his brothers and the work they were accomplishing, and just take a breather to meet with them. But that's the whole point in what Satan wants you to think. He will use any excuse to lure you away from the brethren and the work of Christ, leaving the doors of access wide open to your life in order to do you harm. I have seen this deception take many people down a bad road, and it is sad. It is sadly the one thing which almost always succeeds in stopping the progress of a Christian today. Pulling away from the brethren you are supposed to be devoted to, no matter the reason, will always be a trap when it is anything worldly doing the pulling, even good things. James 1, 13-15 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The bait is your desire, which according to Galatians 5.24 is supposed to be crucified. You can't be lured away from Christ when your desire is to first love him and those he calls his beloved. Nothing should get in the way of maintaining our position with Christ, his body, and our purpose. But Satan is no respecter of persons and most certainly cares nothing about you. He has no care, remorse, or guilt in what he will try to do to draw you away. He will use anything and anyone, especially those you love, to deter and detract you from your mission to see Christ honored among his body. Luke 21, 43, 44, I'm sorry, Luke 21, 34 through 36, emphasis mine. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. I've seen wives, husbands, jobs, children, parents, friends, etc. all be the source of distraction and destruction in a person's life. That is why God says he must be loved with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is no room for anything else if he is loved with all of our heart. Herein lies the secret to living out a victorious Christianity. It is only when we love God with all that we are that we are equipped to love others like he loves us. In fact, when all our heart, soul, mind, and strength are emptied out on Him, we become empty vessels for God to love others through us with His love. Thus, it isn't us trying to love someone, but God loving them through us. This is the secret. When we fully die to ourselves, Christ fully lives within. The measure we choose to die is the measure Christ will live within. Loving the Father with all our heart is not only a command we obey because He is worthy of all of our devotion and love, but also because it is a source of protection and preservation. Anything we love that is equal to or above Him is a weapon in the hands of Satan to be used against us, and He most certainly will make the most of that opportunity. I love Nehemiah's response in verse 3. For he responds each and every time that he is doing a great work and will not be lured away to... Come down. To put this phrase, come down, in more relevant terms for us today, I'll say, be tempted into worldliness and distraction. 
Nehemiah didn't buckle. He didn't compromise and he didn't relinquish ground in setting his mind on things above, but was seemingly impenetrable against each and every attack. This is another one of the attributes of the sequoia that cannot be overlooked. As a mature sequoia can have bark up to two feet thick. It is this characteristic that enables this type of tree to be almost impervious to any outside threat, whether it be insects, fire, or disease. The sequoia is able to withstand any attack and maintain its integrity as long as it continues to remain healthy and attached to the grove, as a diseased tree becomes vulnerable to the destruction of insects. Brethren, if we truly long for Christ to be honored, whether by our life or death, Philippians 1.20, then we must love Him above all this world has to offer, even the good things. We must not give in to temptation to come down from living out the work of heaven and be lured into neglecting the fellowship for anything that is worldly. Hebrews 10, 23-25. Now there's so much more that I would like to cover in the story of Nehemiah. The schemes of the enemy to slander, defame, character, distract, taunt, and even promise to go easy on you if you stop. That's one of my favorites. I'd love to go in depth on Nehemiah's response to his accusers on each and every occasion and how the people seemed to grow in confidence in the Lord with every trial that came their way. But for the sake of staying in theme with this book, I want to focus on the simple fact that the walls got rebuilt. A hopeless situation was alleviated because one man chose to act when others stood stagnant. One man was willing to share God's heart for his people and chose to lead by trusting his God to act on his behalf. As a result, his courage in obeying the call caused an entire group of people to unite as one and achieve what was otherwise thought to be impossible. Reader, you might be the Nehemiah of this generation. You might feel the call right now to be part of God rebuilding the majesty of what his church once was, but you are having doubts and the what-ifs are creeping in and bombarding your soul. It will not be easy. It will require perseverance, faith, commitment, sacrifice, love, and a resolute dependence upon Christ to do his work in and through you. You will need to draw deep into the well of spiritual vigor, letting Jesus produce in you the same thing he had in him, a consuming zeal for his house. You will need to surrender to God's concept of his church and come out from under the shadow of deception that clouds much of Christendom today. It will often be painful, as when God begins to share his heart with you for what he feels and loves, our human hearts aren't fully capable of holding it all at once. It will cost you, but it is a cost worth counting. It will cause you to be rejected, excluded, reviled, and even sometimes spurned as evil by those who choose to be worldly, even in the church, because of living a sold-out life for Christ. Remember, you aren't called to do this alone, as an isolated sequoia can easily fall. When you allow your roots to fuse together with other sequoias, growing side by side, as you sink your roots deep into Christ, God will make you impervious to the winds that try to knock you down. Dear Christian, you were created for such a task and for such a time as this. You are able because he is able. Seeing the restoration of what lies broken is worth the effort and sacrifice. And I'm here to say to you, Elohim Lakam, Abba will fight for you. As you fight for him, what are you waiting for? The time is now. Let us rise and build. Philippians 1, 27-28 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God.